We're going to continue this morning with our series, Signs of a Healthy Church. I took a little detour last week. We're not going to do that again. I'm under strict orders not to do that again. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, because I wouldn't listen to him anyway. If God said do, I would, I'd do it. Anyway, uh, moving on, moving on. We're going we're gonna to continue our series on Signs of a Healthy Church. And just for those of you that haven't been here, just for a real quick recap, We've, we've made some headway. What we've been doing is we've, the church is called the household of God, and so we've been essentially just building a house together following the blueprint laid out in Acts chapter 2. And so, you know, we've, we've talked about what church is, and we've defined it, and we've talked about how to get there and the roadmap and what it is to be healthy and not to be on this roller coaster ride of awakening and disparity, but to just function as a healthy church that's the way the early church did it that's the way the apostles did it and i don't see any reason why that's not the way we should be doing it but for the last two thousand years the greater part of the last two thousand years we haven't been doing that we've been going in these cycles kind of like the book of judges we're doing great then we're in sin and then we're in captivity then we're doing great then we're in sin and then we're in captivity and so that's what we're trying to break out of and so we've, we've talked about what is, what is the foundation of a healthy church, and it's the foundation is laid in the fear of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ, and the door to the, the house is Jesus Christ, and the roof, the vision of the church is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. So if you haven't got the, the picture, everything is about Jesus. And if it's not, then we're not a church and we need to quit. It's all about Jesus and Jesus alone. And then we've talked about the first sign of a healthy church is devotion to the wor- Word of God. That's the walls that kind of frame it in. And devotion to the Word of God doesn't mean reading it. It doesn't mean studying it. It doesn't even mean doing it. Devotion to the Word of God means living it, learning it, loving it, letting it become your all in all. And we talked about intentional fellowship, about being intentional about the w- system and the structure of the church and the body of Christ so that fellowship can happen as a result We've talked about cultivating a culture of generosity. We've talked about what the posture of worship is and what worship actually is. Not praise, not prayer, worship, being preoccupied with the person of God alone. And so we've, we've went through all of these things, and it kind of brings us to our next sign. And I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a, a disclaimer. I don't know if I'm, I I think I've gotten to the point where I shouldn't even have to give disclaimers. Just walking up here should be enough of a disclaimer at this point. But but I'm going to give you a little bit of a disclaimer. I'm going to say something today. I'm going to present an idea to you. And you may not agree with it. And like I've said this morning, you reserve the right to be wrong. That's okay. But but I I don't want you to just disagree with me. I want you to just chew on the thought with me for a little bit what we're going to be talking about today is in acts chapter 2 42 when it begins he says they being the early church were devoted to the apostles teaching which is the word of god fellowship we talked about that and to the breaking of bread there's that little phrase the breaking of bread there and for those of you that don't know that's a reference to communion the lord's supper jesus on the night that he was betrayed he took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for you take eat do this and remember to me so the whole lord's supper the eucharist communion whatever you call it has been um summarized in that little phrase the breaking of bread let's break bread together and then we've kind of modernized it and talked about eating you know but that's not what it's meant to portray it's meant to talk about participating in the lord's supper together so there's this idea that the early church participated in the sacraments together and when i say sacraments a lot of you may know what that is if you've been in church for any length of time and some of you may not the sacraments typically can be reduced down to two things depending on which you know denomination or you know tradition you come from so cessationalist groups typically reduce reduce the sacraments down to two things the lord's supper communion and water baptism pentecostals at the base level would typically say there's three water baptism communion and foot washing some pentecostals would say there's five water baptism communion foot washing laying on of hands and spirit baptism roman catholics say there's seven they they change some out and throw in marriage and confirmation and holy orders and stuff like that but the point is is that 
all of these different bodies have a different list of, of how many sacraments there are. And one thing that I've realized is that's because nowhere in the Bible that I'm aware of, I could be wrong, but nowhere in the Bible does it say, does Jesus say, hey guys, this is the, the sacraments of the church. Here's what I want you to do. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nowhere. We have just kind of taken these things, these instructions from the Lord, and turned them into kind of like these material, ritual, traditional things and said these are the ordinances or these are the sacraments. And so I got to asking myself the question, why? Why do we say that these are the ordinances and sacraments? What about this? Let me... Ordinance, I said we'd define everything. Ordinance, the etymology of that or the history of that word comes from the word order or command or instruction. And sacrament comes from sacred or holy. Those are the ideas being communicated. So let me ask you this. Is not prayer commanded? Isn't prayer sacred and holy? What about fasting? Isn't fasting commanded? Isn't fasting sacred and holy? What about, um, I don't know, Simplicity, simplistic living, that's actually commanded, and it's actually sacred and holy. What about solitude, being alone with God? What about discipling one another, guiding one another? All of these things are actually sacred, holy, and they're commanded by God. And they're what we call the spiritual disciplines. So what we've done in our modern Christianity is we've created this list of spiritual disciplines, and then we've created this list of ordinances or sacraments, and we've kind of separated them. But my idea that you may or may not agree with, my thought process, is that they're actually all just spiritual disciplines. That they're all ordinances, that they're all sacraments. And that the church is actually instructed to participate in all of them. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to come back to that, but I'm, I'm just laying a foundation for you. Turn Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 3, and we're going to read some verses here, and we're going to do a little bit of groundwork. We okay? You guys good? Everybody surviving? Happy Father's Day? Yes? Okay. Great. Praise God. All right. Verse 3. His, God's, divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. I'm going to read those two verses again before we continue, just so make sure you heard it. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first couple verses, the ones that I repeated, should be enough for us to just throw our hands up in awe. We have an invitation to participate in the divine nature of God. Can you think about that for a second? The godness of God. And we have an invitation to participate, to join in to that. But he says this first. He says, his divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Notice it says everything that we need, not everything that we want. The church needs to hear this. I mean, the, the whole church at large needs to hear this verse. Because we... We get this confused a lot. When our life gets difficult or we're praying for something and asking for something and we don't receive it, we think that God is coming shortchanging us on his promise. 
on his word. But the truth is, he says he'll give us everything that we need. He doesn't say that we'll give us everything that we want. Now, I know we read and quote the King James Version of Psalm 23 where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The problem is that's an old English word which really implies a necessity. The the Lord is my shepherd, I shall need for nothing. It doesn't say I shall not want. No, you're going to have wants because you've got a fleshly fallen nature that has some sinful desires. And let me tell you something, God is not about acquiescing or conforming himself to your sinful desires. There's a lot of things that I have wanted through my Christian walk that I look at now and I'm like, dear God, thank you that you didn't give me that. Thank you that you didn't give me that. When uh, my wife isn't here, so I can say this. <laughs> oh, she's going to listen to this and I'm going to be in trouble. But here's, here's a little bit of a confession on my part. My wife and I pretty much, s- within the first year of me becoming a Christian, we started dating. And, you know, we've been together pretty much ever since with a few little hiccups to begin with. But those were my fault. I'll own that. But before she and I started dating or started talking, I actually had another godly woman that I had thought we had agreed on a lot and we did some Bible studies together. I thought, oh, that may be the woman that God has planned for me to marry. And so I actually asked God, like, God, make this happen, you know, I'm, I was 20, a 20 year old guy, it's a pretty girl, you're like, God, make this happen for me, help me out here, and I prayed that, and now she's way off in left field somewhere, and I'm like, dear God, thank you for saying no, (laughs) like, what kind of chaos would I have been in, like, thank you, for for turning that prayer down it's like my kids you know it's father's day i'll just keep using them as you know they've asked me to do things in the past but i know how dangerous those things are like my kid says oh you know three-year-old like i want to help cook like let me grab this boiling hot you know cast iron skillet and it's like hang on no you know like you know you just you see things and you have an ability to discern things so god doesn't give you everything you want and there's a reason for it mainly because You don't know what you really need half the time. I don't know what I really need half the time. And sometimes God says, I'm not going to give you that because what I'm actually going to give you is going to be infinitely better than that and work more for your good and glory and my glory than anything that you've asked for up to this point. So we need to get that through our heads. We ask for some things, and sometimes God doesn't say yes. And it's not because he's bad. It's because he knows. God gives you everything that you need. And let me, let me put a clarification on this. Everything that you need to live a godly life. See, he puts a speculation on that. And here's the reason. Sometimes we go through life, and there's some things that technically we could say we need. Listen, I've, I've went hungry before. I've had seasons in life where I couldn't afford certain things. And I'm like, this is actually a need. Like, I need this. But there were things that I, were, I was being shown and taught in those moments. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I know how to be abased. I know how to suffer and how to do without. I get it. I, I, can, I know how to be rich. Listen, it, that's not hard, okay? Listen, it has its own set of tr- troubles, troubles, but I think anyone in here would be willing to be tested with an overwhelming amount of financial blessing. Like, like, Lord, why have you never tested me with money? Like, I, I, I'm just saying, like, that's not taking a whole lot of instruction. I think it's a lot harder at times. Let me, let me be careful how I say this. It's hard at times to walk through having nothing. Like, that can be very difficult. But there's, like, such a sweetness that can be learned from that that it's a whole lot more beneficial to go through the times of need and having nothing than it is to go through the times of having abundance because you learn dependence on God. You learn how to trust God for everything. And there is an interconnectivity that happens in those moments of being abased that just don't happen when you're abounding. Anyway, so when he says he's God's given you everything that you need, he's given you everything you need to live a godly life. 
He's not talking just about financial blessings. He's not just talking about food and raiment. He's not talking about a place to live. That's not what's being communicated here. If you have those things, make no mistake, they came from God. But that's not what's being communicated here. What he's talking about is the things that he has provided and communicated and given to you so that you can live a life in Christ Jesus and be conformed to that image so that you can walk out your faith. That's what's being communicated here. And he goes on and he talks about God's glory and his goodness. And he says through these, through his glory and goodness, he has invited us to participate in the divine nature, to participate, to enjoy the presence of God. I I can't even preach how amazing of an invitation that is. That God, who is the fullness of joy and happiness and hope and laughter and celebration, has invited you to participate in that with him. That's incredible. Not just his emotional offering, but also his power and his authority and the miraculous. Like he's invited you to participate in those things with him. And he has extended the invitation to escape the corruption of this world. See, he, this whole section here is an extension of the offer to participate or to practice the divine power of God. He is offering you to practice the divine power of God in your life. And if you do that, he says this is what's going to happen. Two things. You're going to get to participate in the divine nature and you're going to get to escape the corruption of this world. Those are fruit, not roots. Those are fruit things. What I mean by that is those are things that come after, not things that are required before. And see, in Christianity, in American Christianity in particular, we kind of flip the script a little bit. And we kind of paint this picture of you have to look a certain way before you come to Christ. We kind of paint this picture of you need to clean yourself up before you come to church. You need to dress a certain way before you come to church. You need to think a certain way before you come to church. You need to talk a certain way before you come to church. You need to escape the corruption of this world before you come to church, and then God will save you. And that is the biggest lie that's ever escaped the pit of hell. It's the biggest lie that's ever escaped the pit of hell. You know what that is? That is a guy named Stoechian. There's a beautiful word for you, Stoechian. For those of you that have studied Greek, Stoechian actually means rudimentary elements it means tradition it means legalistic premise and it's the word that paul uses to rebuke the teaching of the pharisees that keep things on a material base level that don't ever go deeper for the supernatural uh, the spiritual and that don't ever go behind for the spirit of the law as long as they can get the materialistic practices down that's the spirit of religion it's religiosity and here's here's this this paradigm that I'm going to I'm going to this contrasting paradigm that I'm going to paint for you guys. So the fifth sign of a healthy church for those of you that are that are taking notes is this. It's practicing the spiritual disciplines. Practicing the spiritual disciplines. And as we've been building this house We have been equating everything to a different room. You know, fellowship was the living room. You know, the word of God was the walls. You know, the worship was the master bedroom. You know, the culture of generosity was the overall aesthetic of the house. You know, we've been building, you know, this this house, metaphorical house. Practicing the spiritual disciplines is like the kitchen, which is the best room in the entire house. Yes, amen. It is the best room in the entire house. Look, listen, the kitchen dining room combo, because some people's dining room is a part of their kitchen. Most of them are right next to it. That is the best room in the house. And here's why. Because everything happens in the kitchen dining room. It's the epicenter of the home. Messes are made. Chaos happens. Business is conducted. People sit down at the table and do their finances. You know, that's where celebrations happen. People party together. That's where you eat together. That's where you are you. That's where you laugh. That's where family game night happens. That's messes are made and wonderful, you know, treats like pumpkin pie and sweet potato casserole. I don't know why I'm thinking Thanksgiving food. I need to be thinking Fourth of July food. It's like hamburgers and all this awesome food comes out of the kitchen. 
and is enjoyed in the dining room usually. It's like, it's amazing. It's an amazing place. Learning happens there. Laughter happens there. Crying happens there. Mistakes happen there. Sweat happens there. Sometimes blood and burns happen there. You know, hopefully no hair loss, but I'm just saying. (laughs) And so when we're talking about the spiritual disciplines, practicing spiritual disciplines, it's kind of like the kitchen and dining room of the house, right? When you're driving by the house, you can't see what's going on in the kitchen. Religion is like curb appeal. Stoician is like curb appeal. Sto- I, it's Stoician, and that's what I call the spirit of religion just so I can give a name to it so that when I rebuke him, I have a name to rebuke him by. My wife calls it so icky. Mr. So icky. <laughs> because religion is icky. It's nasty. Religion is concerned about the curb appeal, not about what's going on in the kitchen. Religion doesn't care if there's a chaotic mess in the kitchen as long as the curb appeal looks right. I went to the doctor this past week over my ankle again. And while I was in the waiting room, they had this episode of Fix Your Flip on. I don't know if you guys ever watched that show, but basically there's this lady who's been in real estate for like 20, 30 years. And what she does is when flippers have bought a house to renovate and then sell for a profit, when they get in over their head and start losing money and are just up to their eyeballs and don't know what to do, she comes in and provides an opportunity. Granted, she charges a hefty penny, but she comes in and helps walk them through that so that they can escape with a profit. And I was watching, and and this episode came on, and it was these two guys, and they had paid like $800,000 for a house they were going to fix up. I'm like, dear, (laughs) whoa, okay, all right, let's continue with the point there, but they paid $800,000 for a house they were going to fix up, and here's what they did. The house is chaotic. It looks pretty from the outside, but it's chaotic on the inside. Bathroom is torn out. Walls are torn down like it's just dusty and filthy and nasty. And she walks up and she just asks him a question. Because the yard, the, the, like where the camera angle's on, it shows this beautiful lawn and this beautiful landscape front of the house. And she said, did you guys put this down? He said, yeah, we spent X amount of dollars, $800 for the sod and then X amount of dollars for the landscaping on the house. And she said, but the house isn't finished. And he said, yeah, we were doing this to generate some early curb appeal, some early interest. And she like points over and 20 feet to the side, the camera zooms over and there's a pile of garbage, garbage bags and torn out, you know, drywall and electrical cords and just nasty, filthy pile of garbage in the driveway of the home. And she said, you're trying to generate curb appeal? And I thought, this is the perfect picture of the spirit of religion. What religion wants to do, this is the perfect picture. Because religion wants to keep the camera angle on the $800 sod and the landscaping, not caring that there's a mess over here or that there's chaos on the inside. If religion can get you to see the outside and what's external and make you think it's pretty, religion's okay. I'm serious. Religion wants you to look a certain way and talk a certain way, and think a certain way, and act a certain way, and it doesn't matter what's going on in your heart. Religion doesn't care. You know, when we watch these these great preachers fall into heresy, or fall into sin, or we watch Christians that we think are okay, and the next thing you know they've committed suicide, or they're just out and they've walked away from church entirely, everybody's like, what happened? They were doing so well, I thought everything was okay. And it's like, no, they've been doing this in their heart the entire time. They have just let religion paint a pretty exterior. They just have the curb appeal, and the kitchen is chaos. And when I say kitchen, I'm talking about their practicing spiritual disciplines is chaos and in disorder, but their curb appeal is correct. But here's the thing. You leave a kitchen in chaos long enough, it's going to eventually affect the curb appeal. Leave that stove on long enough. And eventually it's going to burn the whole house down. Your curb appeal is shot when the house burns down. 
And that's what a lot of what has happened to a lot of Christians and preachers when they finally have these epic falls into sin or when they finally, you know, just walk away or you have somebody that's been pastoring for 20 years comes out that they've been engaged in all these extramarital relations and doing all these things. You're like, wait a second, that's not who they were. Yes, it's exactly who they were. Stoechian has lied to you. That's why Peter goes on and he says, for this very reason, for the invitation to participate in the presence of God, for the invitation to actually escape the corruption of this world and its evil desires. See, many of us, our Christianity is like this. We engage in this act of will worship. Like, I'm not going to do that because it's bad, okay? Even though everything in us wants to do that, we externally engage in this act of will worship that I'm going to force myself to not engage in those practices because everyone tells me they're, it's bad and the Bible says it's bad somewhere. But there's no real root change. So all we're doing, and my favorite illustration of this, is all we're doing is we're pa- taping apples onto a dying tree. So that people walking by think that there's fruit. That's what religion wants to do. It wants the tree to look okay even if the roots are dying. Here's the thing. An apple tree with dead roots or dying roots can produce fruit for a short time after. It'll get more and more scarce but it can still produce based on the moisture that it's already absorbed until it finally dies out. Just like a tree with healthy roots won't produce at first. It may take it a while. The roots, you, you go through the, the, the necessity of fixing the root system, you know, getting that blockage out, cutting off those things that have root rot, and doing some work around the base of the tree. It may be a year or so or two before it actually starts producing fruit, but when it does, it'll continue to produce fruit from here on out because now its roots have got so ingrained it's capable of absorbing what it needs and producing what we've been trying to do is operate with bad roots and try and, you know, kind of staple on what people, we think people want to see. What Christians should look like according to American standards. That's why sometimes we have to just say, everything is not okay. I need, I need some, as Dallas Willard calls it, I need a renovation of the heart. I need some heart surgery to happen. I need some things to change. Because I am interested in whole body and whole heart and whole mind discipleship, not just painting a pretty exterior picture. Think about this. Jesus gives religion a good picture, doesn't he? He says, you you scribes and Pharisees, you're whited sepulchers. We used to live on the Gulf Coast right outside of New Orleans. And because it floods so much there, they usually don't bury a whole lot of people underground. Because if they do and the flooding gets bad, they'll come up and we'll have an early zombie apocalypse. <laughs> but they, they do these above-ground graves where you can kind of like open the door and go in and there's the, the coffin and all that stuff. They do a lot of those. Here's the image. If spiritual disciplines are like the kitchen... And religion is concerned about the outside. And Jesus says the religious people, Stoechian victims, are like whited sepulchers. It's the equivalent of walking into one of those above-ground graves in New Orleans and sitting down to have your din- dinner. That doesn't sound appealing at all. And if it does, you need counseling. <laughs> I'm just saying. But that's the equivalent. You're filled with dead men's bones. Like the outside is right, but the inside is dead. And eventually it'll come out. Because if you've got filth in the cup and you start filling it up, when that water starts overflowing, the filth that's in the cup is going to come on the outside. That's why Jesus says, don't wash the outside of a cup and leave the nasty on the inside. Wash the inside of the cup and then the overflow is going to take care of the outside. 
We're talking about an interior work producing an exterior occurrence. That's what the spiritual disciplines are about. And that's why it's a mandatory that a healthy church is filled with people who practice the spiritual disciplines. And the great thing is Peter gives us a list. That's why he says make every effort. Make every effort. Meaning anything that you can do to produce these things in your life, do them. There's a lot of spiritual disciplines out there. There's a lot of things that can contribute to your depth in Christianity. There, there is a lot. Peter doesn't list 500 disciplines. Instead, what he does is he lists the characteristic or the attribute or the trait that you should have as a Christian. And then he tells you to make every effort to have that. So what he's essentially saying is this is the characteristic or the attribute that needs to be cultivated. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to help us out, church. Actually, it's what God gave me. But I'm going I'm to help us out, church. I'm going to give you a couple disciplines to help cultivate those attributes. Okay, we're going to walk through this list. If you guys got that image and you want to throw it up so that everybody has it, don't bother taking a picture. I printed it out, and it's in the foyer so you can have it. Oh, my gosh, that is tiny. All right, did not expect it to be that small. That's all right. That's all right. So the first thing that Peter says is faith. He says, add to your faith. Now, what he's saying is, add to your salvation. The faith that you began with, add to that. Now, how does salvation start? How do you become a Christian? What? Hear the word. That's how faith is produced, by hearing of the word. That's great. How do you become a Christian? You repent. You believe. You pray, right? Faith begins with prayer. Now, I know that there's Calvinists out there that would disagree with me. That's okay. I don't care. The Faith begins with prayer. Your relationship with Jesus, your participation in your relationship with Jesus begins with prayer. He's always had a relationship with you. He's always been pursuing. He's always been providing. He's always been inviting. But your participation in that relationship begins with prayer. It begins with the moment that you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's when your faith begins. That's when your participation in that relationship begins. When you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 10. That's when your faith begins. So faith, you want to cultivate the attribute of faith, you do it through prayer and through hearing the word of God. Hearing the words of Christ. It's different than study. This is just hearing. This is just reading. This isn't breaking it down. This is just letting the word soak over you. That increases your faith the next one he says add to your faith goodness now i shouldn't have to explain goodness it's just doing good (laughs) it's not doing bad you want to cultivate the goodness in you and in your heart serve others the next one is knowledge this one's pretty easy because in american christianity we have thought knowledge is the epicenter of it all almost to the exclusion of emotions almost to the exclusion of the heart, we thought, hey, discipleship is just learning more information. That's half of it. That's left brain Christianity. That's leaving out the right brain. That's leaving out the heart. And we've got big-headed Christians where their head is too big and their heart is too small so they don't have the ability to lug that big head around and do anything about it. And then you've got the opposite in the spectrum. You've got people that got such big hearts, but they don't have any knowledge. So they got a big heart, and they, they want to do something, but they don't have any knowledge, so they don't know what to do. Jesus wants us to be both, to have the knowledge and the heart. That was a side thing for free. But to cultivate knowledge, you do through, so through study, particularly the Word of God, but it's not limited to that. Study church history. Study the culture around you. Study the context in which you're ministering. Study how to minister. Study how to share the gospel. Study. And then also meditation, meditating on the Word of God. Not Near Eastern meditation where you sit like Rafiki from Lion King. No, I'm talking about meditating on the Word of God. I'm talking about taking a verse in and just chewing on it, chewing on it all day long. Then you've got self-control and perseverance. Those are the next two on the list, and I put them together because in my mind, perseverance is a specific type of self-control. It's how do you control yourself in adverse or difficult situations but if you want to cultivate self-control and you want to cultivate perseverance let me tell you something fasting is the way to go (laughs) and i'm not just talking about from food listen i hate fasting 
I do it every once in a while when God tells me to, but I hate it. I hate fasting. Because here's what happens every single time that I fast, every single time that I fast, somebody walks up as Satan's emissary and says, hey, I have a $100 gift card to Cheddar's. You want to go? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> Lord, is this permission to break the fast or are you testing my commitment? Or somebody's like, I just cooked this awesome meal. Like face mom and be like, I just, I just cooked lumpia. And if you don't know what lumpia is, look it up. It's amazing. It's a Filipino egg roll thing. Man, it's a gift of God. But <laughs> it's like my, my, my dad always says, that's going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb right there. That is. He's like, yes, 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 it is. Yes, it is. Goodness gracious alive. But I'm serious. Every time I go to fast, somebody offers me something for free. The very first fast I went on, I was at a church, and it was a, I went on a three-day fast. Day one, I showed up at the church because they were having a meeting, and they had an impromptu spaghetti dinner. How in the world you have an impromptu, unannounced spaghetti dinner, I do not know, but they did. The very next night, I show up on a Saturday for a youth event, and they have pizza. Now, I don't like pizza anymore, but then I did. And, I, and they had my favorite, like the, the stuffed crust supreme. And then Sunday, I was invited out to dinner with somebody for a Chinese buffet, and I'm like, anyway. That's all irrelevant. The point is, is fasting will teach you self-control. It will cultivate that. It will cultivate your perseverance. Dear God, will it cultivate your perseverance. But there's also solitude and simplicity. And when I say solitude, I'm talking about getting alone with God with no agenda. See, in Amer American Christianity, we have agendas a lot. Like we have something that we want to accomplish, things we want to do, don't we? It's like anytime we have a friendship or a conversation with somebody, there's always like an ulterior motive. There's like an agenda, something that you want to get out of that conversation. It's like we don't ever just pick up the phone and call and talk to people anymore. I don't. I'm guilty of this because I'm on the phone so flipping much that every time I call somebody, I'm like, man, when's the last time I called just to talk? And I think about it and I feel guilty and then I don't fix it. There's a confession for you. But solitude. It's getting alone with God with no agenda. It's putting away the TV, the remote, putting away the cell phone, getting away from people, and just sitting with no agenda. I'm not talking about getting alone to read your Bible. That's great. That's not what this is. I'm not talking about getting alone to pray. That's great. That's not what this is. It's getting alone with God with no agenda to just simply wait on the Lord and let Him do a transforming work in you. And let me tell you, that is one of the most difficult things to do. And solitude... Mike did this once, Face Dad. This is a quote from him, but he did it once. He went up to this cabin on top of this mountain, and it was completely isolated. It wasn't even like actual gravel driveway to get to where he was at. And he's sitting alone with God, and he, he said this. He said, the silence is deafening because he had no agenda and just waiting on God. And it just becomes, at first you're distracted, and then after the first hour and you just keep waiting, you end up, seeing the contrast between you and God. You end up seeing how holy he is. And the further you go in that, the more awestruck and captivated you become by who God is and who you're not. Solitude. Simplicity. Simplistic living. Let's keep going before we run out of time. Godliness. When I'm talking about godliness, I'm talking about not righteousness or living rightly or right conduct. That's a completely different idea. That's a fruit of this. What I'm talking about is the nuances that make your life godly, not just good. And we're talking about things like spreading the Lord's Supper. We're talking about water baptism, initiating a life of discipleship. And we're talking about spirit baptism, being baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit repetitively for cleansing, for purifying, for power, for service to the church. And then you go down, the next word, or the next trait is mutual affection. The word, Greek word for this is Philadelphia. Philadelphia, brotherly love. That's why Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love because its name literally means brotherly love. NIV translates it as mutual affection. I think that's a terrible translation, but whatever. Um, it just means loving one another, horizontal love. And you, do, you cultivate this by actually participating in it. You guide one another. You disciple one another. 
share in one another's struggles. You confess your sins and your shortcomings to one another. Listen, the Roman Catholics got a lot of things wrong, but one thing that they do have right is the idea of confession. Now, the system that they twisted and contorted and perverted it into is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the simple idea of confessing your sins to another human being. That is something that could come back to the church in a heavy way. Because instead of confessing it and creating a culture of vulnerability and transparency where people could actually get help, what we do is we bury it and then it eventually burns the house down. Confession, foot washing. Now all three of these actually work to unify us as a body. If you're talking about guidance and discipleship and laying on of hands, which is in this idea, it, it implies we're all going in the same direction. Listen, I hire a tour guide to lead me somewhere. If the tour guide is going somewhere that I don't want to go, I'm not going to hire them to be my tour guide because they're going to take me to the wrong location. A guide is taking you somewhere that you're going, that you want to go. So it implies that we're all moving in the same direction. They can't be your guide or disciple you and be going in two different directions. It's just not going to work. So it, it implies we're all on a mission together. We're all going in the same direction. The confession creating a culture of vulnerability shows that none of us are perfect, that we all have weaknesses and shortcomings and that we need each other. And then foot washing is the most humbling thing that I think you can do in the church. I think it's the most humbling and submissive thing that you can do in the church. And it shows that I'm not better than you. Yeah, I'm up here preaching. That means that I'm a servant. I'm not better than any one of you. I think the church needs to hear that more often from people that stand up here. Just because we're up here doesn't mean we're better. Half the time it doesn't mean we're holier. Half the time it doesn't mean that we're smarter. It just means God called us to be a spectacle. And when I say spectacle, I don't mean an entertainer. I mean set forth to be an example to suffer well, to lead well, to suffer badly, to provide a good example, a bad example. God set us up. That's what we've been called for is to lead us in the same direction. Don't have to be the smartest, just have to be called. Anyway, moving on. And then lastly, godly love, worship. Now we talked in depth about worship a couple weeks ago. But see, all these disciplines, those are things that most of you already know about. But have you participated in all of these? You don't have to answer me. I'm just, I'm just asking the question, have you participated in these disciplines? Because this is the kitchen of the home. This is the epicenter. This is how you have a deep Christian life. This is how you get beyond the superficial and the surf surface Christianity. This is how you actually get into the nitty-gritty of Christianity. This is how you actually do the renovation of the heart, how you actually do the transforming work. You partner with the Holy Spirit, and you do these things. You're inviting God's divine power to come in and transform you. It's not just hearing a good sermon or attending a church service. It's about making your life a life that is committed to the Christian worldview. That's what the disciplines do. Now, I want to I jump past this, and I want to I read the effects of this. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, meaning if you have the qualities and you're doing the disciplines to cultivate and to enhance and to build and to strengthen, it's like working out. Peter tells you the muscle. This is your bicep. Then you have a hundred exercises that you can do to build the muscle and the strength of your bicep. If you have these qualities, these traits, and you're exercising them in an increasing measure, you're building them, you're strengthening them, this is what's going to happen. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. Maybe it's just me and maybe I'm harsh. But when I look at the church in America particularly, I'm like, man, we are kind of ineffective. And we are kind of unproductive. I mean, we got like the same number of churches. Yay, we plant 4,000. Oh, 7,000 closed. Like, anyway. 100,000 people got saved. 100,000 people died. 100,000 Christians. I mean, it's like we're not, are we gaining ground or are we just, trying not to lose the ground that we've gained in past awakenings and revivals.
But Peter says, if you do these things, they are going to keep you from being ineffective and unproductive, meaning that you are going to be effective and you are going to be productive in your Christian walk. I'm interested in that. And then he says this. He says, but who doesn't have them is nearsighted. (laughs) Meaning they can only see what's right in front of them. They can only see the curb appeal. They can only see what you look like, what you sound like, what you're wearing. They can only see the religion. They don't see beyond that. They don't see the spiritual realm. They don't see what's coming around the bend. Listen, when you start engaging the spiritual disciplines, let me tell you something. The prophetic opens up. You spend some time alone with God in solitude and you wait long enough, he'll start talking to you. Many times we just don't take the time. It's like pop in for 10, 15 minutes, God doesn't speak, and then we exit stage right. Well, I guess God's not very talkative today. It's like, anyway, they're, they're nearsighted, but they're not as nearsighted. They're blind. It's like how can you be nearsighted and blind? You're nearsighted because you're only seeing the religion and the face value. You're only seeing the curb appeal. You can't see beyond that, and you're completely blind to everything that's spiritual. And we're, th- we're that way in the church. Man, all the time I'm reading these stories about how so-and-so had somebody in their church that, you know, was in their leadership and, you know, was, you know, hurting kids or, you know, doing this or doing that. And I'm like, where in the world has discernment went? I mean, it just flies right out the window. Anyway, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says this. So I'm always going to remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I'm going to remind you of them. As long as I'm in this earthly tabernacle, I'm going to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, because this is crucial. Listen, it's not exciting to stand up here and to talk about spiritual disciplines. I've preached a lot of things that are way more exciting than this. And it's fun to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being filled with power and anointing. And it's fun to talk about prophecy. And it's fun to talk about healing and to have prayer for healing. I love those things. But sometimes we just need to slow down and get to what's necessary and show you how do you live a Christian life. How do you actually take what's in this Bible and what you read and make it a lifestyle? And this is it. This is how you live a godly life. You do the spiritual disciplines. If you're a weightlifter or a bodylifter and you never work out, you're no longer going to be called a a bodybuilder. Anyway, so you've got a choice, church. Every one of these messages, I, I, I give us a choice. That's because I can't make these decisions alone. I'm just one person in the church. We have to collectively make the decisions. We can be concerned about curb appeal, or we can be concerned about what's going on in the kitchen. We can become Stoekian's latest victim. And let me tell you something. In Cleveland, Tennessee, Stoekian, the spirit of religion, has a lot of victims. A lot of victims. People don't want to admit where they're really at or what's really going on, and they want to keep up the appearance as long as they can until it kills them. That's why people don't say certain things behind the pulpit. That's why people don't address sin. You know how many pastors I've talked to, and they say, I can't tell them what they're doing is sin because they're our biggest tither in the church. And it's like, who cares? I don't want that corrupted money anyway. (laughs) That's exactly right. Preach that. But I'm serious. We have gotten so concerned about budgets and buildings and butts. <laughs> and there's some of you that kind of clenched up when I said butt from behind the pulpit. <laughs> That's the. the <laughs> but I'm serious, guys. We can be concerned about the nonsensical stuff that's surface level. But you know, last week when I read from 2 Corinthians 4, what's seen is temporary. The spirit of religion has an end, it's finite. But this stuff lasts for eternal eternity. It's got eternal significance. And you're in being invited to have God's divine power active in your life. And if you do that, you escape the corruption of this world, not just pretending, not just will worshiping. You actually escape. 
and you get to participate in the divine nature. That's something that I want to do. Amen? All right. I think I've taken up enough of your time this morning. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take a second. I don't care about music or anything like that. And I want us to pray. If you want to come forward and pray, you can come forward and pray. If you don't, that's okay too. But I want to take just a moment, and I want us to pray and ask God to get rid of the spirit of religion from this church and from this city and from this nation. Because revival will not come until religion is broken. Now, there is a pure and undefiled religion, which James talked about. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is religiosity. People look and dress and sound in a certain way so that other people can see what they have and what they are, rather than seeing the depth. That's what's wrong with the church, is we have become so narcissistic, so fixated on our image, that we have failed to realize that the heart's infinitely more important. And what does God tell uh, Samuel when he's comparing David to the brothers? He says, God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And that's the way that God's looking at this church. Not just on the outward appearance, but he looks at our heart. And if we want revival and we want awakening, we want God's spirit to fall on this place and to fill these, these seats, and we want to see the miraculous come, This is a sometimes ugly, sometimes messy, and almost always difficult step that has to come first. We have to actually go through the effort to be transformed. Amen? Let's pray. God, I am asking you, I said it earlier, sometimes we don't have simply because we do not ask. So, Lord, I'm asking you this morning with every fiber of my being that you would remove Stoechian and the spirit of religiosity from this church and from this city and from this nation. Lord, look at me. Search me as an individual. If I get caught up in religion or if there's anything in me that is focused on appearance, or focused on what other people think and what other people are concerned with, Lord, remove that from me and let me be focused and fixated only on what you think and what you're concerned with. Lord, don't let me be fake. Don't let me be a facade, putting on different masks. Lord, let me be real and authentic. And let that be the prayer for everyone in this congregation. Lord, let us have authentic Christianity. Not fake, real Christianity. Christianity where we know that our God came in the flesh, sacrificed himself on our behalf, was nailed to a tree, was crucified, died, buried, quickened, raised, and seated, and ascended, and reigning. Let us realize that Christianity is about Jesus plus or minus nothing. And that it's about Jesus conforming and transforming us through the power of his Holy Spirit into his image. Not into a whited sepulcher. Not into something that just has curb appeal. But something that's real. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a great day. Happy Father's Day. You're dismissed.